This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in your day, what's the first thing you would do? Get outside more? Check in on that friend you've been meaning to catch up with? Maybe learn how to play an instrument? I know I've thought about what I would do with more time in my day, and many people daydream about what they might do in that scenario. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your actual schedule is to know what's important to you and take whatever reasonable steps you can to make those things more of a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Therapy is not just for people who've experienced major traumas. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and it empowers you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a quick questionnaire that will match you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash FilmDaily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, March 17th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, I'm going to be joined by somebody to talk about all the stuff that he's seen at South by Southwest 2023. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Jacob, happy St. Patrick's Day to you. We're actually recording this one day early, but uh, happy happy St. Patrick's Day in advance. <laughs> Uh, I'm recording this from bed on painkillers. Uh, I'm going home from Southwest the other day. I, I hit a deer at 70 miles an hour on the highway. Um, my car is wrecked. My body is not great. And if I sound like I've been paying throughout this podcast, I apologize. Well, yeah. So I, I want to talk to you about what you've been doing at South by Southwest. I, I hope everything else that you've been doing there has been a little bit more safe than that. So uh, obviously, uh, well wishes, speedy recovery to you. Um, but tell me about the movies and shows and stuff that you've been seeing. What is your your um, favorite thing that you've seen? Well, uh, this is not a complete list of everything I've seen. I decided a few things that aren't really especially noteworthy or interesting, I'm going to leave off this list. And also, I'm focusing mostly on the um, major stuff that I saw. If you want like the smaller discoveries and like the movies that aren't, you know, come to a theater near you, you should go on slash.com and check out the reviews from Rafael Montemayor and Aaron Brady, who've been hitting that beat. I've been, um, I think give all the big world premieres. Uh, and I'll start off, uh, the, I think probably the biggest movie that played itself by Southwest. It wasn't even formally announced. It was a quote unquote surprise screening. That was not a surprise at all by the day it was playing, but it was a uh, John Wick chapter four uh, ahead of its uh, oh, release next week. Had its uh, North American premiere. And South by and uh, 
Ben, I feel like I feel like you and I have not talked to John Wick enough. How much of a John Wick fan are you? Uh, I really love the first movie, like the second movie a lot. The third movie it, it kind of pummeled me into submission. I, I feel like I was starting to lose a little bit of the the magic of this franchise on the third movie. Um, but from what I've heard so far, the fourth one is pretty kick-ass. So I'm hoping that it's going to, uh, you know, right the ship for me. Well, fourth movie, the rumors are true. It's three hours long. Uh, <laughs> but I will say this much. It has more action in it than I think most movies have in their running times. It wow. is um, pretty much nonstop. There are, it, I think there are three action scenes in this movie. And each one of them is, you know, minimum like 20 minutes long with a with the final hour being one long action scene um that uh i guess the spoiler free way to tease it would be one of my writers who was at the who was at the same screen as i was pitched it as this is john wick reenacting sisyphus's you know story in greek mythology to give you an idea of how 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 wild it is um yeah john wick chapter four is in the, in the press, Chad Zosky, the director, said that, that they're kind of taking a break after this one, and this feels like them trying to be like, yep, let's get the people they want on the biggest scale possible and step away from the John Wick universe for a bit. It is, uh, it's wild. And I will say, it, I felt its length until I didn't, because once that final hour kicks in, I can't believe I'm saying final hour of a John Wick movie, um, <laughs> I found myself, I feel like all of everything I, maybe I was, you know, perturbed about, even slightly kind of washed away, because the action staging in this movie is extraordinary. And in that final stretch, I just don't know how they did it, man. I don't know how <laughs> they, they did the scenes they did. And we have, any, we have interviews with the director on Slash Film, upcoming interview with the stunt coordinator. And even after reading those, I'm like, man, I'm not so sure how they did this. Um, there are shots and moments uh, and stunts or I don't know how people died. Like the paraphrase Steven Soderbergh from a few years ago, he said that he watched Mad Max Fury Road and does not know how George Miller made it. And I, I imagine that unless you're Chris McQuarrie, who did the Mission Impossible movies, the most recent ones, I don't think he watched John Wick 4 as a filmmaker and then like sleep that night because <laughs> just the anxiety <laughs> dreams of wondering how they did this are just holding, are like, really like standing out to me. Anyway, this is my long-winded way of saying that it kicks a whole lot of ass. And I've... There are action beats in this movie that I think we'll be talking about for a bit. Um, and the variety of the action. I mean, like, just when you think, like, this action is going on, maybe a little, maybe is it actually about to go on too long? They change locations, or they change rooms, or the, a different type of bad guy shows up, or the weapons get swapped out. Uh, just, like, that final gauntlet of action scenes, for example. You know, it, it just goes from location to location, from place to place. And it keeps up in the, the up in the ante of who John is facing and why he's facing them, and and I just man, I I watch a Fast and Furious movie and I enjoy it, but I always say, oh yeah, okay, they they put Vin Diesel in a car in front of a green screen. I don't know how they did this one. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what they did. I don't know how you safely make John with Four's final hour and and walk away without somebody being dead. I don't know how, Ben. I don't know. Yeah, I had I had a similar reaction that I was talking to uh, BJ on a recent episode of this podcast about uh, the first time that I watched Police Story 3. And that movie um, ends with just a spectacular series of action sequences where they actually are doing stuff probably in a super unsafe way, you know, in the, in that sort of Hong Kong uh, 
cinema of the 80s and 90s era where they actually were like really dangling off of the edge of the edge of buildings and like doing stuff where people broke bones and all that um so i'm guessing things are like a little bit more controlled in in the 2022 2023 era filming of a john wick movie but um but man i'm excited to see this after after that ringing endorsement from you yeah i mean people have smart things to say to me like i said i i couple days after seeing it which stands out is just the visceral experience of the action and how chad Slasky utilizes his stunt team how he utilizes keanu reeves you know who's still at his best here uh and how like when people do need to talk when like the movie does slow down the, the delve into it's you know increasingly co- you know complex world building of, of the high table in the, in the criminal underworld like the, at this point it's practically dune it's practically it's practically door of the rings it, it's no longer in our, in our world it's, it's a criminal fantasy that's kind of why i like it <laughs> But like, well, okay. speaking of uh, of things that aren't necessarily in our world, uh, the next movie that you wanted to talk about uh, is also a, a sort of a, a big budget fantasy in a way. Oh yeah, it's a big budget fantasy in, in every way. It's a Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves, which was the opening night film itself by, and uh, it was the world premiere. And Ben, would you believe it when I said that Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves is the most complete feeling studio blockbuster of this type of genre that I've seen in some time? The only reason that I would believe it, well, there are two reasons. One, you said it, so I put some stock into your opinion. But also, because it's made by the guys who made Game Night, um, the trailer for this movie looks abysmal to me, personally. Like, it does not look funny. It does not look interesting. But uh, from from what I've heard, the reaction to this one is pretty strong. So I'm guessing this is one of those cases of, uh, you know, the trailer being as broad as possible in, in an attempt to bring in the most people as possible, but the movie itself has a little bit more personality than the trailer leads you on to believe. You know how every Marvel movie of the past few years and every, like in so many major studio movies, they get to the third act and you start getting disappointed and it falls apart. You realize it's probably because they started filming without a finished script. Yep. Um, what if I told you that Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons Honor Among Thieves has an airtight screenplay with character arcs, setups, and payoffs in a third act that concludes the emotional journey of every member of the cast, and that the directors, what the, the writers and directors uh, of, of uh, uh, they directed Game Night, they co-wrote the screenplay and, and, and directed this. What if I told you that their script feels finished in a way that most studio movies don't these days? Uh, that sounds very, very nice and genuinely refreshing. So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that. Anyway, it's a, it's a Dungeons and Dragons is an extremely funny movie. Um, every character is funny. They do so without being without the expense of their world. Like you know how Marvel, especially recent Marvel, seems embarrassed by the characters. Like, like I, I like Quantum Mania. I'm, I'm the rare person likes Quantum Mania, but that movie was super like Modok. Ha ha ha! What a what a dumb name. And characters in those movies are always like sort of like making fun of their world to try to like be above it and try to ward off criticism in advance. Mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons doesn't do that. It's very, very funny, but the characters are all honest about their world, and they never make fun of their world. It's just, it's ridiculous and silly, but it never, and it's never embarrassed by it. It's very, very happy to be a fantasy story, Ben. And so refreshing. I didn't know how much I missed this. What a concept. What a concept. Uh, how is Chris Pine in it? That's a big question. Uh, Chris Pine as Chris Pineus. This is a, uh, he is incredibly funny. His character is the charming, sarcastic rogue of the group. He's a uh, former spy who's, who's fallen into a criminal lifestyle. And he, um, he, he sings, he gets to, um, wisecrack everybody. He gets to have, you know, his big, but also has big emotional moments. He has, he's a character who, the movie's built around his character's arc and his, and his quest to, um, 
win back the love of his daughter, um, which is the point where I say, Ben, I thought I was crazy until I talked to some people who also agree with this, but this really does play like the big action blockbuster version of Princess Bride in terms of tone. Wow, okay. That's um, high praise. And I love Princess Bride, and I guess because Princess Bride, the movie is really, really about families, about love and connection, and even though this movie is a big, you know, silly action movie full of, you know, you know, big sequences and much bigger than Princess Bride ever was, I walked away feeling like, this is very Princess Bride to me, and I, I think people are going to make fun of me. I think people will, will see it and, and, like, snark at me saying, of course it's not like Princess Bride, but I would watch these two movies together, and I, and I, and I, and I think that there's a, an emotional honesty to both that um, I think pays off. And also, this is very, very important, there are CGI monsters, Ben, but if it's even remotely human-sized, it's a guy in a suit or a puppet. And that's oh, very, that's cool. So, one of the very first things you see in the movie, I guess the, the, the opening scene in the movie is Chris Pye and Michelle Rodriguez's characters in prison, getting ready to uh, make their appeal to the parole board to be let out of Fantasy Jail. And the parole board is one human, one halfling, aka a hobbit, uh, uh, you know, created with you know, visual effects, uh, and uh, one guy, and one like dragonborn, which is like a dragon-shaped human. It was, it was like literally a guy in a Jim Henson-esque puppet. Like he has dialogue, and he talks in a scene, and it's like, like five minutes in the movie, I was like, oh, they have a practical dragonborn in this Dungeons and Dragons movie. I think I'm going to like this. And the answer for the rest of the movie was, yes, I did. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. What did you think about Evil Dead Rise? That was the one that premiered uh, last night as we're recording this. Yes. Well, Evil Dead Rise, uh, it's the most Evil Dead movie, Ben. Are you a fan of the Evil Dead movies? I've seen the first two and I've yet to see Army of Darkness. So I don't know what that says about my fandom. Yeah. This one is, in terms of its intensity, closer to Fede Alvarez's remake, 2013. That movie was incredibly violent, if you remember it, uh, for folks at home remember it. It's uh, like unrelentingly gory and upsetting and hostile to the audience. Uh, Lee Cronin, the director of this one, writer director of this one, he produced a movie called uh, The Hole in the Ground, which I really like, but it was a very quiet, kind of low key, you know, creepy movie. It goes in the opposite direction here, where um, this movie is as violent and as intense and as unrelenting as Evil Dead remake, but it's actually fun. It's actually kind of like in on the joke, and like instead of trying to pummel you into submission, it's more about creating things so outrageous you kind of have to laugh. And of course, the, the big change up here is that it's the first Evil Dead movie that's not you know set in the wilderness or in the case of Army of Darkness in the distant past, and it is about. A family who reads from the wrong curse book uh, in a Los Angeles apartment, and things go horribly wrong. And the movie always has this kind of nasty edge to it because this is not just a bunch of horny college students in a cabin who are hacking each other up. It's a family. It is a mother, and mother, sister, and three kids of various ages. And so, by default, the movie is like feels transgressive in that way because it's family against family uh, as people get literally hacked to pieces and horrible things are shouted in demonic voices uh, and this gooey, gooey, gooeyness. If you are, if you go to horror movies or Evil Dead movies uh, hoping for the most violence or the most gore or the gnarliest creature effects, uh, this will deliver. It is, um, once you get to rolling, it's pretty much nonstop in that department. It is, whoo boy. There are effects you're like, Ben, I, they're, they're clearly using a lot of the, uh, practical you know, visual effects for the various dismemberments and uh, mutilations and whatnot. But there are certain effects where I'm like, there has to be digital effects here. There has to be like a marriage of digital and practical in this shop because there's literally no way to do this safely without 
without that. So as a um, piece of filmmaking craft, as like a 90-minute like tour through hell on earth, essentially, uh, where, where you're invited to laugh at the hell on earth, um, this movie is extremely fun. Like, I don't think it's particularly deep, but also I don't think any Evil Dead movie is deep. I think the Raimi movies were an excuse for Sam Raimi to, like, you know, have a series of set pieces of things that he clearly wanted to film and goof off and lean into what he found, you know, interesting or funny or intense. And uh, Lee Cronin here, I think, does the same. Um, it's just a, uh, I'm not going to say turn off your brain because that's never a good, good advice for me. But I think that there's, no depth here, but there doesn't need to be. It's just, it's just an excuse to admire the horror craft on display, and mm. I really enjoyed it. Okay, so that's Evil Dead Rise. Uh, all of these movies that you've mentioned so far are coming to theaters pretty soon, like within a month, I think. So um, definitely stay tuned for those. I guess before we go any further, let's take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. All right, Jacob. You've also had a chance to watch uh, a couple TV shows, right? Yeah, I saw the uh, world premiere of the first few episodes of Mrs. Davis which is the new Peacock show that's uh, co-created by David Lindelof, although the showrunner is uh, Tara Hernandez. But it's funny about the show because it feels like it's playing in David, David Lindelof's, uh, you know, his playground of ideas, like things he like, uh, interest him, faith versus science, mystery boxes, you know, um, human connection. Uh, but Tara Hernandez, I think, is the wild card here. I think uh, there is a very goofy comedy streak this show, this, this science fiction show, if you've, if you've seen the trailer for it, it um, kind of hints at that. But it was real Lonely Island and real Monty Python energy on top of all the normal little off stuff. Um, the way I, I described it in my review is that it's like Lonely Island adapting Neil Stevenson, the uh, the uh, you know science, the very brainy science fiction writer. <laughs> uh, so I, I don't know how, like, but also like there's a little bit of Preacher in there. There's a little bit of, um, a little bit of early Kurt Vonnegut. Um, there's there's a, a surprising amount of The Leftovers, David Lindelof's previous show they made for HBO. Uh, but like, it's like if The Leftovers was, was a Looney Tunes episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's really something else. The, the premise is that uh, it's uh, alternate 2023. There's a all-powerful artificial intelligence called Mrs. Davis that has supplanted Facebook, supplanted social media. Everybody wears an earpiece where Mrs. Davis tells them what they need to know, tells them how to live a happy life, uh, how to get what they want. And the main character is a uh, nun living in Reno, Nevada, played by Betty Gilpin from Glow, who refuses to talk to Mrs. Davis, who refuses to get the earpiece and refuses to um, engage with her. Uh, and she gets roped into a, um, we'll say a quest that I will not spoil here. I'm not sure the trailer does, so I won't, I won't say it here because it's 
a really fun reveal. She's roped into a quest where she's working for and against Mrs. Davis at the same time to try to um, serve and destroy the all-powerful AI that dominates the world. And the show is kind of chaos. It, it kind of um, does not tell you information until you need to know it. Um, it. It kind of doles out its mysteries at its own pace. And it's extremely goofy. There is a motorcycle chase in episode one that it might as well be a live-action Simpsons sequence. I think some people are going to be turned off by how chaotic Mrs. Davis is and how it really is just trying to be a show about everything. Um, it, and, it, it, you know, it's trying to meld, you know, extremely low comedy with, you know, high-minded satire about AI and where we are now. And it's trying to be a show about faith and about how we grapple with faith, uh, but also a, a show that's about... Um, it's about goof, about like goofy magician stuff. There's a, there's a shocking amount of magician subplots, <laughs> and uh, episodes, especially the reveal at the end of episode two, which is um, like I, said, I would love to talk to. Uh, I know we have an interview with Hernandez and Lindelof coming up soon on the site. I'm not sure if, if this will not be addressed on those interviews. Interviews are spoiler free, but the conclusion of episode two, the, the moment that made me realize, yeah, I'll have to get Peacock and watch the rest of Mrs. Davis, is the. Uh, most Damon Lindelof. I feel like it had to be like a Damon Lindelof concept because it feels like a very natural extension of both uh, Lost and Leftovers. So that's Mrs. <laughs> Davis. You may hate it, but I like the chaos. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm a big Damon Lindelof fan. Um, the one question I have about it, Jacob, is like you mentioned Preacher uh, as being like a potential um, – uh, inspiration or something is the show preachy though is my question because like with the idea of AI versus you know everybody else or versus this nun character and like you know everyone in the world sort of um, buying into this AI concept and this one lone figure uh, standing in opposition to that there's a danger there of it of it feeling like uh, the people making the show telling us hey don't spend all day looking at your phones, which is like something that, you know, a message that people have tried to convey before, but it just feels like uh, out of touch in a way because it's like not, it's not possible anymore. Like we're so, we're so far beyond that as like a, um, an observation to make that it just, it feels, um, you know, reductive almost when, when people uh, tell stories where that's like the main theme. So I'm, I'm curious if there's more to it than that as the, the sort of underlying message. I, I think so, because um, I never got a turn off your phone message from Mrs. Davis. I got a, um, the, the show is less about turn off your phone and more about what do you value in, in your human existence? Like, because um, like, Mrs. Davis as a concept is essentially a fascistic force. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, it, the, the, the way the, episode, the show lays out how it controls people and how it, makes you happy um, while also taking away any semblance of freedom you think you have is less about social media and phones and more about political awareness and more about, you know, how you value yourself as a person or how you choose to read into faith and mm -hmm. the faith aspect. I'm not, I'm not a religious person, but I found episode two's exploration of Betty Gilpin's character's faith to be kind of profoundly moving. Um, and that's what and that, that was a subplot that made me realize that I was in. So, I, I I think that it's it's a very very modern show, which tackles lots of modern ideas. But I never got a 
put down your phone, uh, millennial. You know, what are you doing, okay. uh, Gen Z? I, I never got that from the show. At least once okay. you up That's good to hear. All right. Uh, you also had a chance to watch some of Rabbit Hole, the new uh, Kiefer Sutherland spy show. Is it a spy? Is he playing a spy in this? He's playing spy adjacent. Uh, this is a new Paramount Plus show. I saw the first two episodes. And I watched it because I'm a big fan. I was a big fan of 24 back in the day. I love Kiefer Sutherland on, t- on TV. I think he's on his element on TV where he's yelling and pushing people against walls and growling at them. And he does a lot of that in this show. Um, I was hoping for a pretty good dad show. A show, you know, similar to Reacher or Jack Ryan, you know, Bosch. I was hoping for something along those lines, you know, a traditional throwback. Something you watch with your dad or your father-in-law and you, you both like nod and say, yeah, that was some that was some cool tough guy shit. Um, and Rabbit Hole at first fulfills that. The basic premise is that Kiefer Sutherland is, uh, he's a freelance uh, espionage agent who works for uh, white-collar organizations. Like if you want to uh, manipulate the stock of another company, or you want to create an event to cause people to uh, sell off or make major financial decisions, him and his team will sort of create false realities. They will mm. um, create fake news reports or um, or create uh, the, the illusion of something happening on the streets where it's not actually happening using technology and spy craft and acting and, you know, body doubles and just timing. And, and, he is, and at first it feels like a pretty typical CBS-esque procedural. You know, it's a Paramount Plus show. CBS made it for Paramount Plus. And at first it feels like, oh, it's going to be a show about Keith Sutherland's character's team as they go about, you know, creating white-collar crimes while the FBI looks into him. Uh, but pretty early on in the episode, they kind of blow his character's life, life apart. He's suddenly without his team. He's without his resources. He's on the run. And he's framed for a crime he didn't commit. The FBI is on his tail. Um, but then episode one ends with a very peculiar reveal. And episode two began immediately at South by Southwest. Um, so I was able to sort of, you know, lean into what happens next. And the show starts getting weird from there. And weird in a good way. It starts revealing that the premise of the show and everything you saw in episode one was from a very specific perspective. Keeper Sutherland's character was keeping things from us. Um, everything he has not told you or, or told, everything he's told us, you know, it could be a half truth or a lie. Hmm. Um, there, there, there are like your characters who are discovering things about his situation that don't line up with what the show has presented before. And the rabbit hole title feels very literal because by episode two, um, you started like being let in layer by layer by layer as the show pulls you deeper into a much bigger conspiracy, a much more labyrinthine plot. Um, what you thought was this simple CBS procedural clearly has a lot of truly deranged moving parts. And episode two ends with the character <laughs> reveal and an actor reveal that I thought was incredibly fun and definitely gets the biggest pop from the audience as you realize who the character was in its role in the show. And, and that character also kind of redefines the nature of everything that had to happen in the first two episodes. So yes, it's a very good dad show. It's a very good Kiefer Sutherland rust people up show and does cool spy shit show. But I was really impressed by how the show is clearly unfolding deeper and deeper toward a mystery where each episode is kind of rewriting what you saw before and revealing that every character in the show is a damn liar and every one of them has more than letting on. I found the first two episodes to be very fun dadtainment. All right. I mean, it's not surprising to hear you describe it that way when you realize that the people who make this show are, um, I think their names are uh, John Requa and Glenn Ficarra, who are the people behind um, that movie Focus with Will Smith and Margot Robbie, which is like a con man movie from 
geez, I don't know, 2015 or something around there. Um, that was like very labyrinthine and lots of uh, twists on twists on twists and double crosses and all that kind of stuff. So it sounds like they're taking that idea and just applying it to that kind of dad show template that you're talking about. So um, yeah, yeah, I was surprised anybody by how much I enjoyed this. Like I said, I'm already kind of diehard on Paramount Plus. I think your library is actually one of the best in streaming. So when this hits Paramount Plus, I will be watching the rest of it. And so that's take from that what you will. <laughs> All right. So you also had a chance to uh, get back into some more movies. You watched uh, a horror movie that played, I think, at, at Sundance earlier this year called Talk to Me. Yeah, we have a review of this from, from Chris on the site. And I disagree with Chris. He gave it a pretty middling review. Whereas this, to me, was the scariest movie since Hereditary. It, it, Ooh, wow. It freaked me out. I was, A24 bought this. It's hitting theaters this summer. It's the rare A24 horror movie that has a pace to it. Like I, I love A24. I love the slow burn stuff. But this is a, a A24 horror movie. It's fast. It's down to business. It's scary as hell. I made my skin crawl. And I, I think Chris took issue with the characters in a pretty major way, but I really did. I think, I think they kind of acted like realistic teenagers. The premise here of this film is that this group of kids, they're Australian, it's Australian filmmakers, have come into possession of a uh, embalmed hand that lets them talk to the dead. You hold the hand and you can start seeing ghosts around you. They can invite the ghosts to take over your body. And, and they hold parties where kids take turns letting ghosts possess them because it gives them a high. It feels great. It's wild. People have a great time. They, fo- they film each other and it's essentially irresponsible kids being irresponsible. And naturally things go very, very wrong um, when the wrong ghost goes to the wrong person for too long. <laughs> and from there, it's... I know saying my nerves were shredded is a cliche and I hate saying it, but Ben, my nerves were shredded by, by talk to me. I was... This movie is a, is a feature debut from guys who have made music videos and, and like YouTube channel stuff. But you wouldn't know it. it. It looks so, it's so well made. It's definitely an Ari Aster level de- debut in terms of this is this guy's first movie or these guys' first movie. I, I said, I, it's not surprising at all that A24 leaped on this. I think this is going to be like, it's punching the same weight class as Babadook and The Witch and all those other A24 movies. Or Babadook, wow. I put up. But yeah, but um, it, it's, it's in that same like, like, you know, heart in your throat. Oh my God, what am I watching? Um, gnarly, just <laughs> horror movies. So, yeah, I, I'd like to say I respect Chris, but I disagree with, with his review and think that you should absolutely have talked to me on your radar. I think July is when A24 is releasing it. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, oof, man. Okay. Yeah, I was I was planning to, uh, I don't know, maybe not skip this one, but at least see what the conversation was. But, but um, yeah, I guess between... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Very curious to see, see what happens here. Uh, you also watched Late Night with the Devil. I've not heard anything about this one. What's this? This was a world premiere. It's a very small movie. Um, this is a movie that, I, that, that was pretty much made for me. It, it's a found footage horror movie that presents itself as a long lost episode of a 1977 night, late night talk show. And this episode, you know, uh, it's being presented as being like, hey, here, like literally, there's, a, there's a, Michael Ironside plays a, a narrator who says that the tape you're about to see is real. Here's the background on this TV show and its host um, for, uh, and before this final episode aired. And, um, you know, it's, you know, what you're about to see is real, et cetera. And then it started in the episode, the, the episode, the episode slash movie properly begins. And it's, you know, like, a, you know, a 90 minute, you know, late night talk show in, in the Johnny Carson mold, uh, except that it's a show that's kind of failing. That's not that funny. We can't, really, really can't get guests. Um, in other in the commercial breaks, it cuts to like behind the scenes footage that was, that for some reasons being filmed. I you kind of have to suspend your disbelief there of the cast and crew scrambling to get their show made and, you know, stipping at each other and, trying to figure out how to get the ratings up. Uh, but 
ultimately it's a Halloween special. It's, it's, it's that year's Halloween special. And one of the guests is a uh, doctor and the girl she claims is possessed by the devil. And as the title <laughs> Late Night with the Devil implies, um, things go pretty bad for, for this late night talk show uh, as, thing, as things spiral out of control. Uh, David Dasmalkian plays the host here. And this is going to be the year of David Dasmalkian, Ben, because he has this movie. Which he's really really like he's really convincing as a talk show host, as a guy who'd be funny and charming enough to host a, a, a talk show, but he's also just like he brings like real emotional depth later on, and this is a guy if you don't, if you don't recognize the name he was in um he was Polka Dot Man in the Suicide Squad James Gunn's movie, and he's also been in like you know uh he's been popping up everywhere recently uh, yeah he was, was like the deranged looking dude in the Dark Knight that um, yeah. that dresses in the police uh, outfit and. He has this movie. He has a Stephen King adaptation, The Boogeyman, and he has uh, Last Voyage of the Demeter uh, later this year as well. So this is the. And I year... think he was the voice of the um, that sort of like ooze creature in um, in Quantumania. Yes, he was. Yeah, so yeah, he's blowing up, um, and he is really good here. He's the anchor that holds the movie down. The movie I, um, is really built, well built around him. Like even though the movie looks a little digital, I think I said he's a little too digital to fully look like it's a complete artifact. The uh, production design, the costume design, the acting is really all on point. It, it feels really, really convincing as a fake talk show for the most part. And um, watching how it spirals out of control uh, and watching how it ends up playing with the found footage format. There's a, there's, there's a chunk near the end where it does something with the concept of how we view found footage in a way that I've never seen a, a hard movie do before. That's hmm. incredibly spoilery, so I'm not going to talk about it. But it... Um, it does stuff that impressed me, and I'm you know I'm a found footage defender. I watch so many bad found footage movies, hoping to find a good one. And uh, I, I don't know if anybody listening has seen Ghost Watch, the uh, BBC TV movie that uh, cast actual BBC anchors and pretended to be a investigation into a haunted house, um, but was actually scripted. This is making a great double feature with Ghost Watch. Uh, I think that I say less people running through woods while people shake trees, and more <laughs> exacting recreations of TV specials. Where bad things happen, and you, and you, I don't know. I'm the kind of guy who I love the, like, the first 40 minutes of this movie is just a late night talk show for the most part, with a, with a handful of spooky parts. I love that you're kind of forced to endure the bad monologue, and like watch as they try to make this TV show, and, and, and like sort of ease into the, this, the 70s setting before things go wrong. I just, if this sounds appealing to you, then then yeah, you'll probably like. It. If you if you listen to this description and say what you keep going on about, then not for you. But late night with the devil is extremely <laughs> fun. And uh, really interesting, and David Dostmalkian rules, and I'm really hoping Shudder or somebody picks it up soon, because I can't imagine this being a movie that sits, you know, unbought for too much longer. Okay, so the, the next thing that you saw is uh, Flame and Hot, which I think is directed by Ava Longoria, is that right? Look, I'm leaving out most movies from this podcast I did not enjoy. I'm, I'm talking about things I really liked. That's why I've been so positive on this episode, is I'm not, not talking about the things I didn't like. But I feel like I should address Flame and Hot, so what's a world premiere. It's hitting Hulu from Searchlight Pictures later this summer. It's a major movie. It is Evelyn Longoria's uh, featured actorial debut. And I have an ethical problem with this movie, Ben. I want, I want to bring it up to you because I want to know if you think I'm crazy about this. Mm, okay. Uh, Flaming Hot is the story of the guy who, uh, his story is that he invented the Flaming Hot Cheeto. He invented, he says that he was, he was working as a janitor at Frito-Lay. And, he, and um, he invented the spice that they put on Cheetos, and that's now everywhere. The, the Flamin' Hot brand is a billion-dollar brand. And he spent the last 10 years doing speaking tours, talking about how he invented it, how he pulled his family out of, like, near poverty, how he became a self-made, you know, a, you know, 
successful branding executive at Frito-Lay because he understood that Hispanic and Latino Americans wanted snacks that, that appealed to their tastes. But the problem is, uh, and the LA Times has a massive article about this I'll need to do my review, is that this is all bunk. He made all of this up. Uh, the team that developed the Flamin' Hot Cheeto developed it years before he had his job, uh, like his, his like before he claims he did. Uh, he did work on, on other products at Frito-Lay that were Hispanic and Latino-oriented, but he did not work in Flamin' Hot. And uh, the, the, the largely retired team who did make the Flamin' Hot Cheeto, which was a team of people, not one guy, uh, they did not realize that he was going around doing speaking speak engagements, taking credit for their work. And when they found out, Frito-Lay conducted a massive investigation, concluded that it was all false, that he had nothing to do with it. And the LA Times wrote this all up. Like, like Frito-Lay has gone out and said, this is all fake. LA Times has, has all the receipts from everybody who worked on the project, all the dates, all the times. And Frito-Lay informed this production before it started filming that, hey, LA Times has this story. This story is not true. You should be aware of this. They filmed it anyway. It's presented this fact. and even has like the typical biopic closing images of like, of like the guy in real life photos. You know, here's what he did now. And here's where he went. So it presents an utter fabrication from a con man as truth. It never once tries to like act like we're adapting a fairy tale or adapting an urban legend or adapting a false. It, it elevates this guy as being a, the real person who did all this when he straight up did not, and the filmmakers were informed that he did not. So that's one problem. Have, the big problem, how the movie been? So is this, is this a question of ethics? Should, should it supplant the movie itself? If the movie is good, should this ethical concern derail that? That's my question for you. I feel like if the movie is good, then that's just a really important uh, um companion piece conversation that needs to be attached to every discussion of the movie, because that seems to completely undercut, you know, what the movie is purporting to say. Um, But if the movie is good, then I think there are, you know, obviously there've been plenty of movies that take tons of liberties with the truth that are incredible movies that stand on their own, uh, whatever, uh, social network, Wolf of Wall Street, whatever. Like these movies are, are not exactly how things went down, but they're amazing movies. So it, it is possible for something to, um, to take such liberty that, that it, it results in a good movie and it almost like doesn't matter in the same way. But, um, but is the movie any good, Jacob? No. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, then that makes it really difficult to justify then. Look, I'll say as much to the- the audience seemed to eat it up. It's, it's designed to be a crowd pleaser, but it's it's a biopic that leans into every biopic cliche, biopic cliche except it's about Cheetos instead of you know a instead of you know a more you know exciting uh, accomplishment. And I say that as somebody who really enjoys spicy Cheetos. Um, <laughs> the issue with it is that it, everybody has their heart in the right place. It's a movie. It's about Mexican Americans and how the tastes of Mexican Americans fundamentally shifted. Um. The American market, like flaming hot Cheetos, were developed because people are getting more more interested in that type of food, the food that was you know non-white, like people from Latin America and Mexico. And the movie's very very proud. The movie the movie's incredibly proud that, Mex- that Mexican Americans, Latinos, Hispanics, fundamentally shifted how food is made in America, and that's a really cool thing. And it actually is like a powerful point to make. But the movie literally pauses every five minutes for a character to monologue about it. it, it there's no, there's not a point where it lets you like 
ease into it. There's not a point where it lets that be a revelation that you have as a person. Mm. Everybody essentially turns the camera and says it out loud. And there's constant voiceover narration that says it again and again and again. It, it, it's a movie that's built around. I'm going to steal a quote from. I'll talk to somebody about after the screening. I, I apologize for borrowing his quote here, but it's built around cheer points. It feels like it's a movie that's every five minutes it wants you to cheer, um, and does that by every five minutes with another monologue about how important Mexican Americans mm. are. And I don't want to undermine their point. I think this movie was made with best, in, but with, with, with like that's a good intention for a movie is to celebrate that. I just don't think it's a good movie, and I think that it's a really weak script, and it just does not. It does not trust its message to come across in a way naturally. It, it, it feels like it has to tell us constantly. And it, I found it really annoying after the first 30 minutes when there's another hour left. Yeah, that's a bummer. So that's Flaming Hot. That's going to be on Hulu, I think. That's that's uh, a Hulu original, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, okay, the last one that you saw is a movie called is a movie or a TV show called Join or Die? This is a movie. It's a documentary. Uh, Ryan Scott reviewed it for Slash Film. Um, it should be on the site now. Uh, and I'll be brief here because I did, I did like it. Uh, it's a documentary uh, about the concept of um, is democracy in America dying because we don't join clubs? And it follows a guy who's been to pass, he's been his entire career as a political scientist, first in Italy and then in the United States, exploring about how when Italy revised his government to be like essentially state based, he, he discovered that the states in Italy that have the strongest democracies. Or the, or the local governments that were most trusted were the states in Italy that had consistently um, influential or well-attended choir groups and church groups. Then he brought the data to America and found out that as people have lost faith in government, as democracies come under attack, as things are falling apart, coincides directly with the fall of bowling leagues, with the fall of people joining the Elks, with the fall of like League of Women Voters being a thing, with knitting circles falling apart. And his hypothesis, which it was a documentary it was all about, is that uh, as communities fall apart and people stop being forced to like spend their day-to-day alongside people they disagree with or while sharing something they love, people stop trusting each other and democracy fails. Which <laughs> is a wild thesis, but one of the documentary paints it uh, in a pretty fascinating fashion. I'm not, I'm not saying 100% convinced by it, but I'm just be saying that I left the movie going, maybe I should join a club. Maybe I should join an organization <laughs> in, in my local town. Uh, just to try to um, save democracy. So my my gut reaction to that, Jacob, is like uh, the idea that that things are falling apart and people aren't joining these clubs or whatever means that they have more time to be online and be radicalized. Is that uh, thread brought up at all in the movie? Yeah, it's touched on. It's touched on about how people on the internet. You know, if you're in a bowling league and you're with a guy, if you're on a bowling team with a guy who drives you nuts, but you, you got to bowl with them, you know, you learn to be respectful of that person. But if it's a guy on Facebook, you call him an asshole. So, right. uh, so that's kind of the movie's thesis is that we're social is a social currency. The United States is dead. Uh, the idea of, of you going, of, of somebody you disagree with trusting you and liking you because you're in the same bowling league. And therefore, like if you say, Hey, help me out here. Or, Hey, I think you're wrong about that. Instead of trusting them and to, to like have the conversation instead, you yell at, yell at each other. And I thought that was, um, I mean, maybe go, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, okay, yeah. so that's that's join or die. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it has released yet, but I feel like the kind of doc that I can imagine popping up on Hulu or Amazon at some point, but I would recommend keeping an eye out for it if you, if you want to um, have a good reason to maybe look in your local bowling league. 
Okay. All right. Yeah, there's a, a good recommendation. Um, all right. I think that's going to do it for uh, today's show. Jacob, do you have um, more lined up in the, in the closing days of South by Southwest? What else are you looking forward to seeing, if anything? Oh, I learned yesterday that going out to a film festival while coming from a car accident is not something you should do. So I'm probably done at South by for the time being. I uh, Except for the, the closing night screening of Air, the Ben Affleck movie, which... Um, We'll be covering Slash Film. The question now is just whether or not I will be able to make it out there myself. But look for our review of Air um, on Saturday or Sunday after that screening. Okay. And yeah, and we have a, a ton of reviews uh, from South by Southwest up on SlashFilm.com. Several articles that were written by Jacob himself. So I encourage you all to go to Slash Film and, and check those out. Um, you can, let's see, Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you on Monday.